It's in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, uh, you can be seated. You can turn to Joshua. We'll be looking at that in a moment. We're at our 22nd Suggested Topics sermon. And uh, this one is, we, we started last week a new category that I entitled Christian Living. And we're on the second then of 13 messages that I plan to bring in that category. And the topic this week, well, last week it was piety versus pietism. And we looked at the importance of pursuing true piety, which could also be called godliness. But we also warned about pietism, which is an artificial kind of a godliness, an artificial spirituality that's not rooted in the word of God. And a lot of people want to have that. They want to have, you know, their trinkets that they use for religion. Oh, I'm a spiritual person. But they're not really connected with God and the truth of his word. This topic, this week's topic is related to that. So I put them next to each other. Uh, The suggestion this time was to preach a sermon on how to grow in godliness, faithfulness, and courage. It's kind of interesting. You have a topic like that. and You think, okay, well, are there some passages that kind of Include all three of those things together, or do we need to have separate passages that that we read about this? And uh, it's interesting because some of the notable passages that I thought of were Joshua 1, Acts 4, Matthew 10 that we read a few minutes ago, and 1 Timothy 2. And interestingly, all of these have to do with advancing the kingdom of God. As Christians, that's what we're called to do, isn't it? We want to, we're to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So growing in godliness happens when we commune with God in the word and prayer so that we grow in the knowledge of him, in faith of him, in love to God, in service to God. We grow in godliness as we, as we engage with God. Growing in faithfulness happens when we carry out our duty to God, and we don't turn back when it's hard. We go on and on in faithfulness. Growing in courage happens when we stand firm for the truth despite opposition. When people are against us and we are still bold to stand in the truth, and we continue on evangelizing, discipling others without being cowardly about that, not being ashamed of the gospel, as Paul would say. Godliness is foundational to faithfulness and courage, really. Without godliness, you're left with moralism and zeal that are neither one for God. Okay, you can have moralism and you can have zeal, but if it's not godly, if it's not for God, then it's actually more destructive than good. It's more harmful than good. It destroys you and it destroys others. People can get onto great causes, you know. They can be very faithful very zealous, courageous about great causes like you know, fighting to defend their country or combating abortion, something like that, or helping the poor or building a kingdom uh, in, in this world or teaching children, good, good things. The list is endless of what they might do. But if these things are not done for the glory of God, no matter how diligently they may be done, they actually become an abomination to him. 
we too often miss the point that the very thing that is wrong with us is that we rejected God. That we're not godly. That's where everything went wrong. We want to get on well with life without God. Another way it is. You know, if everything can go well for me and I don't ever need to pray or seek God, that's good. I don't, I don't need to think about God. Do we not realize that the very reason that He made us in the first place was that we might know Him and that we might bring glory to Him? Did Jeremiah not say, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom? Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth, for in these I delight. Let's turn now to Joshua 1, 1, 1 through 9, where we see instructions about faithfulness, about or, or about godliness, faithfulness, and courage, or, or faithfulness and courage that are rooted in godliness. In this passage, Joshua is getting ready to lead the people on a military campaign that God has given him to, to fulfill, uh, to take the land that God had promised to his people, the land of Canaan that he'd promised to the nation of Israel. The Lord has called his people Israel to destroy all of the Canaanites in their places of worship because of their great wickedness, that was before God. It had been going on for years. And he has promised to give them the land of the Canaanites that they might establish a kingdom for him there. So they were on the one hand to serve God by wiping them out, bringing judgment that God had appointed to, to the Canaanites. And then the other hand, they were to, be, to take this land that God was giving them as an inheritance. He promised that he will preserve them as a people until the son of promise one we know is Jesus Christ, was born to them. So God was going to preserve them as his people till Christ came. Jesus is the one who will bring and now has brought righteousness and blessings to Israel, those who believe in Israel, and to all the nations. Now think about the task which God had given to Joshua and the people of conquering this land. It was a task that required great faithfulness and courage. Something that did not come naturally to Israel and that does not come naturally to us either. To be faithful and courageous, it was essential for them to be godly. They must both do this work for God and they must trust in God to give them the success. They could only win this battle if they live by faith, godliness, trusting God, doing it his way, not their own way. We see that all the way through, don't we? So listen now as I read this to you. This is God's holy word. Again, the passage is Joshua chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you, as I said to Moses. For the, from the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites and the land of the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. 
Be strong and of good courage. For to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may prosper wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And praise God for his life-giving faithful word. Here you are given three things that are necessary if you're to grow in godliness, faithfulness, and courage. First, to grow in godliness, faithfulness, and courage, you must have a God-given or God-wrought, God-worked in you, desire to do whatever he wants. This is essential. Okay, right at, right at the beginning. What if Israel, they're supposed to go into the land, and what if they don't want to do that? It's not going to go well for them, is it? If you don't care about the progress of God's kingdom that you're to pursue and your progress in it, you are not going to grow in godliness, in faithfulness, in courage. You will not venture out in obedience to his call if you don't care about it. You'll make excuses and you'll fill yourself with all kinds of distractions. This is illustrated, isn't it, in this very historical situation that God is speaking into here as he calls them to go in and take the land. Look at how the passage opens. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, since Moses is dead, arise and go over this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving you to the children of Israel. Here you have God declaring to Joshua that Moses is dead. And because of that, the time has come for Joshua to lead the people to go into the land of Canaan. This is bringing us into the historical situation here. What does the death of Moses have to do with anything about Joshua bringing the people in now? Well, Moses had attempted to lead the people in some 40 years before into the land, but they had rejected God's call and refused to go in. They didn't want to do what God told them to do. In case you do not know the story behind this, God had told Abraham, promised to him that he would make him into a great nation. And when Abraham was just, he and Abraham and his wife, and that in 400 years, he would give to his offspring the land of Canaan. The land would be theirs as a place to live under God's protection and government to live beautiful lives as his people in service to God and their king, as their king. He told Abraham that when the time came, it would be the task of his descendants to drive out the inhabitants from the land of Canaan. He said that their iniquity was not yet complete, like he wanted to wait 400 years for their sin to develop and grow up to get even worse before he brought judgment on them. And uh, their idolatry would then have reached intolerable intolerable proportions. Israel was to completely wipe them out and destroy their places of idolatrous worship. 
What was their sin then? Their sin was that they had rejected God. They were ungodly. Rejecting God was the very thing that destroyed the human race in the Garden of Eden. So you can have really nice looking people that reject God. Or you can have people that are all you know, angry and sullen and all that sort of thing that reject God. It doesn't matter. If you reject God, you reject God. God promised deliverance through His Son all the way back after the fall. But as the years went by after the fall in the Garden of Eden when we rejected God, the inhabitants of the world again rejected God. So Adam had rejected God. God promised deliverance. But then here comes Cain. And he rejects that deliverance. He rejects God. And then you have a whole people that reject him to the point that God wiped out the world with a flood. Okay, now it's going to start over. You got Noah and his family. Everything started from now. Everybody's going to serve God. I mean, they learned their lesson, right? Because what happened when you reject God before? You see what happened? No, it's the same thing. The Canaanites were leaders out of that. Leaders into the rebellion to rejecting God. They they uh, they rejected him. This this is the reason that God singled out the Canaanites for destruction. When the time came for Israel to go and inherit this land then, after that 400 year period, then Moses led the people out of slavery in Egypt by God's mighty hand. God demonstrated his power and what he could do through him, through Moses. God showed himself strong and he gave them instructions, full instructions about how they were to live in the land. He gave them all the ordinances of worship and the temple showing about his redemption, how that through those ceremonies and symbols, the, the, the forgiveness, salvation that was from God. He told them that he would give them the land and that he would give the Canaanites into their hands. But when the time came, the people were not faithful. They were not godly. They were not courageous. They refused to go in. They did not believe that God would do this. And they murmured against him. Oh, what do you, what do you want? You know, why did you bring us out of Egypt? It's better there. So the Lord God sentenced that generation to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until they died off. Then he would bring the next generation into the land. So now Joshua, 40 years is over of the time in the wilderness that God has sentenced them to. I guess it was 38 years after that. So uh, it's, it's signified by the death of Moses. That time is over. That period is over. That's how the death of Moses relates to it. And so now God says to Joshua, okay, lead the new generation into the land. What the first generation didn't do, you go and do now. They are to, as it says in verse 1, go across the Jordan into the land. They're to go and get started in doing the will of God. Israel's refusal to do it the first time illustrates to us how essential it is for us to desire to do God's will if we are to grow in godliness, faithfulness, and courage. If we have no interest in seeing God's agenda advanced, we will not grow in godliness and faithfulness and courage. If we don't want to see that, to see his kingdom grow and to see ourselves grow, then guess what? You won't grow. We won't grow. If you don't want it, you won't get it. We will be those who are cut off from God and his kingdom, just like the first generation was, or who never actually enter it at all. But now you see there is a new generation and wonderfully, they are prepared. They are ready to go forward with God's agenda. This is certainly the case with us too. If you don't want to be saved, 
you won't want to, you don't want to grow in godliness, faithfulness, and courage for God? You absolutely won't. Jesus told us that we're to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. If we do not, we will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. If you don't want it, you won't inherit it. First generation didn't want it, they didn't inherit it. The desire to go forward with God is essential then. Now under Joshua, the new generation is ready. God has a way of doing this. Do you know why they were ready? Why were they ready and the other generation wasn't? It's because God worked in this next generation. It's because of what God did. He prepared them. It is a gracious work that he does to cause people to desire his kingdom. Because if he doesn't do that, you'll just go on. You don't care. You're indifferent to it. It's a desire that he works into us when he calls us. What we call the effectual calling. It wakens the sinner up and he says, I must go for God. We are naturally adverse, you see. Just like the Canaanites. And just like Israel in the first generation. We have no interest in seeing God's agenda advance until he works this change in us. And how does he do that? Well, he changes us by the secret working of his Holy Spirit. What I mean by secret is... It's something that you can't see. It's like Jesus said, it's like the wind. You know, you can see the effect of it, but you can't see it. His promise is that he will take away our stony heart and give us a heart of flesh that we will, that will respond to God and that will delight to do his will. This is called regeneration. It's called the new birth. It's called the circumcision of the heart. It's called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's called, called dying to sin and rising to newness of life. It's called many things in scripture but God also uses things that we can see okay so that's the secret working of God in our changing our hearts so that we have a new attitude but God also uses things that we can see things that we experience to make us desire his kingdom how do you do it here how do you do it with Joshua well he gave them the new heart in that generation he also had him in the wilderness for 38 years and they were getting, they were tired of the wilderness. We've got to go forward with this. We're, we're, we're done here. We're, we're ready to go in and do what God has called us to do. He used that to prepare them. And God can use things that are very, very direct and practical like that. Besides that, God had taken care of them and shown them his mighty power so that they could trust him. He'd given them certain deliverances and protections and provisions. He provided food for them that whole time. So he had used hardship, rebukes, people like Moses and Joshua. He used people in their lives to bring the people to the place where they were ready to go forward with the Lord. Sometimes you have another person that influences you, that comes alongside, and they're, they're kind of pushing you and they're leading you, and you realize, I really do need to do this. And God works it into your life, and you start following God. Does God not do the same with you? Does he bring these things into your life? He humbles you with affliction. Say, ah, oh, I can't go on like this. Or he gives you encouragement in his care. You see the faithfulness of God. And you say, I should serve God. He's been so kind to me. He uses godly people and he uses all kinds of circumstances to cultivate a desire, a fresh desire for his kingdom. Perhaps you will be pleased to, perhaps God will be pleased to use this sermon to do that. Maybe some of you who hear this sermon will be stirred up and say, I need, to, I need to do this. I can't go on like I am. I need to go on in service for God. 
would be wonderful if that happened. Today you'll say, I've been sluggish. I need to get on with it. I need to go on for God. I need to quit dilly-dallying around. If that happens, it's wonderful. If that happens, it is God preparing you. You will not grow in godliness, faithfulness, and courage unless you have a desire to grow in the grace of God and to see his kingdom advance. No question, do you have that desire? Is that desire in you or not? That's the first thing that's needed. Now let's look at the second. In this passage, we see that the second thing, to grow in godliness, faithful, and courage, you must keep before you what God has promised. You can see in verse, verses 2 through 4 how God renews His promise to give Israel the land. He says this, that we read before, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them. The children of Israel, every place, he says, look at this, this is a promise. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I, will, I have given you, as I said to Moses, from the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites into the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. The Lord had already given them this promise many times, all the way back to the day of Abraham. But here he graciously gives it to them again. They needed it again because of their weakness. We need to hear God's promises again and again because of our weakness. If you want to grow, that's what you need. You need to know what God has promised. You need to know that he has promised you forgiveness through Christ crucified, lest you go around in guilt and despair. You need to know that he has promised you growth. Because you'll give up trying if you're not looking to God to do it. You need to know that he has promised that his church will increase in the world. Not every congregation will necessarily increase. But his church will continually increase in the world. And you need to go in that hope or you'll despair. You need to know that he has promised that we will inherit glory with Jesus. If there's no end goal. Why would you go on? If you don't know what God has promised, you will pursue the wrong things. A prosperity preacher will have you looking after worldly riches and physical prosperity and health. A political preacher will have you looking to reform the society rather than to advance the gospel. Social activism rather than evangelism. In other words, the goal will not be to bring people to repentance in Christ and godliness, but the goal will be to clean up the society. Let's get rid of some of the bad things in our society that we don't like. No, that's not the goal. It's not moralism. It's, it's the kingdom of God. Most people don't even know or consider that God has promised anything at all. They don't pursue what God has promised because they don't even know what God has promised or even care. You need to know that God has promised. So what we just said is that you need to know what God has promised. You also need to know that God has promised. If God Almighty has promised His kingdom to those who believe, you can be sure that He will not fail. The kingdom will come. That will keep you going. That will keep you faithful and courageous. Because no matter what happens, like the Psalms that we sang, no matter what happens, God can be relied upon. He will finish the work. And then the third thing, you need to consider the value of his promises. 
When Israel rejected God's call, it was in part because they didn't value the promise. They said, oh, the land of Canaan. Well, we were better off when we were in Egypt, really. You know, we had a lot of good things there. They looked at the promise of having the land where God would be their God as something of little value and interest. They didn't realize that to be in the wilderness with God was way better than to be in Egypt without God. Perhaps you're much more interested in entertainment, hobbies, relationships, eating, drinking, shopping, whatever, than in growing in your walk with God. Now, what matters to you? If that is the case, it's because you don't realize how wonderful, sweet, glorious, beautiful, and excellent God's promise is. You will go on pursuing the empty things that you're pursuing now. You will miss out on the glory and happiness that you might have otherwise had. Take time to consider how much you need God's forgiveness. How precious it is. How terrible it would be to be without it. How good it would be to be a whole person that God promises to make you into. How good it would be to spend eternity in God's house. Think of the love of Christ. Think of a world filled with that kind of love. That's what he's promised. That is what God has promised to us through his son. Think of a world where we all live for God, where we all serve one another faithfully and and lovingly, where we have no death, no curse, no sorrow, where we become the glory and beauty of our God, which will never grow, where we behold the glory and beauty of our God, which will never grow tiresome. And we we get enamored looking at, you know, cool things or beautiful things or, or whatever it might be, things are attractive to us. The, the appeal of God will never be lost when we come to know him. Surely you can see how having a clear view of what God promises will move you along with him. In his promises, you see his goodness and grace. For in these promises, he says repeatedly, I give you. See that in this passage? I give you, I give you. Very thought that he should be willing to give you, an undeserving sinner, such things that deepens your, your love for him. It enlarges your heart for God to go on in his service. It stirs you up to worship and pray. If you realize he's given you so much, if somebody gives you a lot of stuff, you kind of want to do something back for them, right? You're a debtor, like Paul said. I'm a debtor to, because of all that I've received. And that makes you more godly because you love God more. You see God more. You see who he is. And then you want to, you want to go on for him. In his promises, you also see his power and grace. See in verse 5 how he says, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Think of who God is. Israel is taking on enemies that were more powerful than they were. Enemies that had superior weapons. Enemies that had fortresses. It's hard to go and fight someone that has a fortress when you're just coming up in the field. You know, how could they even pull this off? Enemies that also, in some cases, were giants, much larger than they were. We are called to do things that would be impossible for us to do without God's help. To grow in grace, to put off the old man and to put on the new man, you can't do that. Not without God's help. To glorify God, you can't do that. To win souls for Christ, you can't do that. To bring nations to Christ, you can't do that either. We can't do that. When you see who it is that has promised us his kingdom, then you can be sure that neither man nor all the powers of hell and Satan and his minions will be able to stop us. He is God and he has promised. Do you see how his promises make you faithful and courageous? 
You see how you, you don't have any courage or faithfulness without those promises. When you know that He has promised, it enables you to bear hardships and loss in the pursuit of His kingdom and righteousness. That's faithfulness. To go on when there's loss and hardship. It makes you bold to go forward for Him despite the strength of the enemy. What's that? That's courage. You say, God is with us. You're like Jonathan when he was fighting the Philistines with just his servant. And there they are fighting a whole group of men. And he, he that is with us is greater than... You know, he, he knew that, that God was, was stronger. This is the response that the Lord expects. Look at verse 6. He says, Be strong and of good courage. For to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. So he's kind of visualizing it. That land I'm going to give you, you're going to be dividing this up among all the people here that are going in to fight. That's going to be the outcome of this. Take the promise. That's the promise. Faithfulness and courage increase when your eye is on God who promises. Yes, to grow then, you must, first we saw, want to do the will of God. And secondly, that you must keep your eye on what God has promised. Those are the first two things. Now the third. To grow in godliness, faithfulness, and courage, you must hear God's express commandments and obey them by His grace. In the rest of the passage, we kind of have three commandments. Some of them are repeated more than once, especially the first one we're going to look at. But there's more or less three commandments here, imperatives that are given to us. Very important if we're to grow. If we're to grow in godliness, faithfulness, and courage, we must diligently obey these commandments. Because of the way God works, we need to look at His commandments. We were just talking about promises. You can actually look at God's commandments as promises to our faith. Promised blessings, in a sense. When he commands something to those that he promises to save, then like Augustine says, give what you command. He gives what he commands. He works it into us. He will enable us to obey. For example, when he says, be fruitful and multiply, that's not just a commandment, it's also a blessing. It's to his whole church. It means that evangelism will succeed. It means that we'll bring forth godly children. It will fill the earth with people for God. It's not just a command. It's also an enablement, an empowerment that we can do that. When he said it, he gave us the ability to do it. It's like telling people that visit you to help themselves to whatever they want in the refrigerator. Commandment, right? Help yourself, right? And uh, what you're saying is, I'm authorizing you to go and take whatever you want. That, that's what you're telling them. And uh, it, it, it moves them along. As, as you launch out in obedience to God's commands, you'll find Him strengthening and enabling you to keep those commands. So if you step back and you say, oh, oh, that's, those commands are too hard. But as you go forward with it, you'll have strength that you didn't know you had. Because God will bring that strength to you. When He commands you to be holy... And you pursue holiness, you'll grow in holiness. When he commands you to circumcise your heart, you can't do that. His promise is that he will circumcise your heart. It goes with a command. He said, circumcise not only your flesh, but your heart. And then he said, I will circumcise your heart. So we look to God to give us that change, that, that new birth in that case that circumcision points to. Let's look at three commands that are found in our text. First, there is a command... Simply to be strong and courageous. So, so the very thing we're talking about, we're commanded to be. 
How can we be strong and courageous? God commands you to be strong and courageous. We've already seen this one in verse 6. It's actually repeated twice more in verse 7. He says, only be strong and very courageous. And then in verse 9, he says, have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. When we looked at the promise before, it was that which is a consequence of believing God's promises. In other words, that we become courageous and and faithful or strong, that when we believe what God has promised, we saw that when we know and consider that our gracious almighty God has promised, it has a way of making us actually strong and courageous by faith. He promised his promise is foundational to our faithfulness and courage. But it is also very helpful to see that it works kind of the other way to have him command us to be strong and courageous. You'll say, but how can he command something like that? I mean, isn't you, you're either strong and courageous or you're not right. Well, I'm just weak. I, I lack courage. People say it's just a given. I don't have any. I don't have any say in it. Well, what you say is partially true. But there's a whole lot more to the picture. Having God command us to be strong and courageous makes it clear that even though you might be helpless to be anything else but, but weak and, and, and feeble and, and, uh, and, and lacking courage, it is still sinful to not be strong and courageous. You say, oh, no, no, I can't help it. It's not sinful. It is sinful because God commands it. That's why it makes such a difference. To recognize that God commanded it. If a man is a compulsive adulterer and he says, oh, I just can't help it. You know, just every time I see another woman and my wife, I just want to I just want to go and sleep with her. That's just I, I just I just can't help it. Oh, well, it's not sinful because you can't help it. Huh? No, of course it's sinful. His adultery is still sinful. In fact, in one way, it's even worse if he can't help it because it shows that he's in bondage to his sin. The same can be said about any compulsive behavior that's sinful. Drunkenness. Anxiety. That's when people say, oh, I I can't help it. Do you think the drunkard can help it? Anger. Murmuring. Giving up. Overeating. Gossiping. Laziness. Neglect of duties. You name it. It is true that when you fall into these things repeatedly and you repent of them repeatedly, it is not the same as presumptuous sin. I had a woman ask me about that recently when I was traveling about presumption. She said, I, I have this thing, I keep falling into it. Is this presumptuous sin? When, when you commit sin, presumptuous sin is when you commit sin because you're defying God. You're, you're, you're saying, I don't care what God says, I'm breaking my relationship with him. Falling into sin again and again. Falling into it is when it overcomes you again and again and again. But it's still sinful, you see. The fact that you can't help it, but sin does not make it not sinful. God commanded. He says, be anxious for nothing, for example. So when you're not strong and courageous for God, that is sinful. Don't be too proud or whiny to admit it. Oh, well, I'm just like, you know, get, get whiny. When you realize that being weak and afraid when God is our God is an insult to Him, what do you think that, uh, what do you think that, how, how is it an insult to God? Do you think He won't help you? If He's commanded you to do something, do you think that He won't help you to change? 
say, well, I've, I've tried and I'm still not changing. Well, bear patiently. Keep on going. Is God a liar? Is he unwilling? Is he unable? Our fear is sinful fear. Having God command us to be strong and courageous compels us to repent when we're not strong and courageous instead of excusing ourselves and saying, I'm just not. It reminds us that we need to look to Christ to forgive us and to transform us so that we will be pardoned and so that we will not keep on being weak and fearful. Maybe it will change your attitude toward the person beside you that's struggling with another sin that is not as socially acceptable when you realize you're struggling too. Second, there is the command to obey all of God's commandments. That's an interesting one, isn't it? This is found in verse 7. Only be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn to the right hand or to the left that you may prosper wherever you go. It's interesting that the actual commandment here is to be strong and courageous. But the reason is that you might obey all that God has commanded. When you're not strong and courageous, it will keep you from obeying many of God's commandments. Have you ever thought about that? For example, if you're weak when you you will cave into pressure from your unbelieving family about keeping the Lord's Day or something. They'll say, oh, well, well, you, you have to be with us. You can't, you can't go to church. You, you know, they'll, they'll start going on like that. Or if you're weak and fearful, you'll tell lies instead of being a bold witness for Christ because you're afraid. Covetousness is often the fear of losing your property. So then you, you hoard up. You don't help people that are in need. You don't tithe. You're, you're, you're hoarding up because you're afraid. When it comes to worship, someone makes fun of the worship that is according to God's commands and says it's ridiculous or backward or boring. And if you're bold and courageous, then you'll keep on going. But if not, you'll compromise your worship. You'll stop modifying it to please man. How did Israel end up with all of their worship in the high places when God told them over and over and over, don't worship in the high places? Well, this was just a socially acceptable thing to do. Let's have this sacrifices in our own community here instead of going up to the temple at Jerusalem. Doesn't that make more sense? It's reasonable, isn't it? That's how they went. There's also here an implied command that we are to obey all of God's commandments. We're to be strong and courageous that we might obey all of his commandments. So be strong and courageous that you might obey all the commandments. When you are strong and courageous, it enables you to obey all of God's commandments. But when you obey all of God's commandments, it also makes you stronger and more courageous. If you're just obeying selectively, then you're not going to get stronger and more courageous. Universal obedience, obeying everything, gives you confidence that God is with you. And that makes you courageous. It is easy to see how Daniel and his friends grew stronger and more courageous when they obeyed all that God had commanded them. They obeyed to start with because they were strong and courageous to start with. But then they also grew stronger and more courageous when they obeyed. You see, by going ahead and obeying everything, it gave them opportunities to develop in the area of strength and courage. The disciples of Jesus were the same. When they obeyed what the Lord had told them, they got stronger and more courageous. In other words, when they went out to witness to people that were 
potentially hostile, and they went ahead and did that, they developed courage and strength as they obeyed God. And see, if you set aside certain things, often you're setting them aside because you're weak and you're afraid. So you have to go on and do everything that God said. That's what he's calling us to here. Now let's look at the third thing that God commands in this section. Third, he commands you to meditate on his word day and night. Look at verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. This is remarkable instruction that is given to, a, to be given to a man who's ready to go into battle, who is going to be the, the leading the people into battle. I mean, we would be inclined to think that the Lord might excuse Joshua from this while he's in the heat of the battle. Well, Joshua, now the next little while, you're not going to have time really to meditate on the word of God and to, to pray and to seek God's word, that kind of thing. You're going to be in a battle. So you better do a lot now and then you can get ready and then afterward you can come back again. Yeah, he'll have time to, for meditation when the battle is over. That's what you might expect. But it's just the opposite. This guy is getting ready to go into this intense situation. In times of pressure, communion with God is not less important. It is more important. Do you believe that? Do we not see Jesus when his ministry is the most demanding going off to a secret place to pray? He gets up early in the morning and goes to pray because he does not want to be ungodly in his busy ministry. Do we not see him as he advances to the cross in Gethsemane, pouring out his heart before his father and considering what God has called him to do and giving himself entirely up to it? even though it meant he had to stay up late before one of the hardest thing the hardest thing that he ever had to do when your work is intense when your problems are intense when the battle is intense it is then that you need to seek god the most it is in these times that you must keep up your communion with god and the principal way is by this meditating on god's word you take his word you think about it you think about what it means what it says about him, what he promises, what he requires, what he has done, and you meditate on it day and night. You respond to him with praise, thanksgiving, adoration, prayer, obedience, and dependence as you meditate on his word. But if the godliness is not there, if there is no Godward focus, then communion with God does not happen and your life becomes godless instead of godly. You might even be successful in leading a battle, or you might be successful in championing a great cause, but it's not godly. Think about this. What is it that makes you go wrong the most in the biggest way? Is it not when you lose connection with God, when godliness goes by the wayside, when you're not in the word and prayer, when you're not walking in communion with God and are not seeking Him? Even when you're successful in a worldly way, is a travesty if it is without God. Ask Solomon. Solomon had everything that the world has to offer. Everything that people dream about. Most people just dream about. He had it to an extent that most people would even just dream about. Riches, 
gold and silver. Silver was just like common stuff because there was so much gold and silver. Wisdom. He had wisdom beyond anyone. Fame. Everybody admired him. A thousand beautiful women. The best food. He had treasures that he had collected from all over the world. He had entertainment of all kinds, music and beautiful things that were uh, to entertain him. He had all kinds of art. He had most people that have all of that don't have a peaceful kingdom. He had a peaceful and secure kingdom with loyal servants who were not trying to stab him in the back. Solomon had unprecedented everything. But when he had all of that under the sun without reference to God, without godliness, he concluded that it was all empty, that it was all vanity. He declared that it was not satisfying, that it was like a treadmill and there was nothing in it. He concluded that we should therefore enjoy what God has given us in this world as our portion, but that our chief purpose is godliness. Ecclesiastes 12, 13, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. And that brings us to our conclusion. Examine yourself. First thing, reviewing what we did, Do you want to grow in godliness, faithfulness, and courage? Do you really want to see God's kingdom advance and to advance in his kingdom? Is that what you're pursuing? If you're not, then it's not going to happen. Number two, do you keep before you the fact that God has promised his kingdom to you? That he is the one by whom you can make progress in his kingdom. You can't do it on your own. His promises are essential to know what he has promised, to know that he has promised, and to believe those promises and act on them. And then the third thing, do you hear his commandment? Be strong and courageous. Do you hear his commandment to keep all of his commandments, not just the ones that you choose? Do you hear his commandment to meditate on his word day and night, to spend time before God? Please stand and let's call on his name. Our gracious Heavenly Father, this is an interesting topic that we were given today to consider the growing in godliness and faithfulness and in um, courage. And we pray, O Lord, that you would help us to do that That first of all, you would give us a desire to do that. A burning passion and desire. Please forgive us because we don't have the desire that we ought for it. Give us a heart for it. And second thing, Lord, we do pray that you would enable us to see that you have promised these things to us. That you're the one who enables us to be godly and to be faithful and to be courageous. May we lay hold of that, Lord. May it be, may it be something that is, is not fuzzy, but is, is very, very clear to us. 
And then, Father, we pray that you would help us to keep your commandments. Father, even the commandment itself to be strong and courageous. And also the one to obey all of your commandments. And the one to meditate on your word day and night. That we would walk with you. That we would commune with you. That we would not try to live life apart from you as if we can get on without connecting with you. Father, we don't know you apart from your word. We don't speak to you apart from prayer. So we pray that you would help us with these things. Even as we go on about our day. That we would live in communion with you. Throughout the day. Father thank you that you are very very gracious. That you are very patient with us. And that you work with us. We thank you Lord that we can ask you now. To forgive us. For coming short. And know that you will hear us. So that we don't need to be disheartened that. Because we have sinned in the past that we have no hope for the future. Help us, Lord, rather to repent of our sin and to find your mercy and forgiveness. And to go forward, Lord, looking to you for the days to come. Oh, Father, do a work that only you can do. Do a mighty work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Receive the blessing of our God. May the Lord your God be with you as he was with your fathers. May he not leave you nor forsake you, that he may incline your hearts to himself to walk in all his ways and to keep all his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, which he commanded your fathers. Amen.